Well, good evening. Sorry I'm running late. This is the first time in history that my wife actually beat me here. I'm sure I will not, not, uh, not be able to live that down. So let me say a prayer and we'll jump into our study. I'm excited to talk about this. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening where we come together to study your word. I pray that you'd open our hearts and pour your wisdom, your guidance, your spirit into us. We thank you for all that you give us. We're grateful for the forgiveness that we have through our trust in Jesus Christ. In his blessed name we pray. Amen. Well, we are finishing up a series on uh, the stories Jesus told, the parables. As I told you, I like the parables because you get the breadth of Jesus' teaching. You get in his stories, which accounted for about 35% of his teaching, you really hear, get all the doctrines. We've been talking about the kingdom. You see how important the kingdom is in Jesus' teaching. It's really what he came to talk about. Sometimes we get a little off-center of that, but he's, he's really here to establish the kingdom. This will be our last session in this study. Next Wednesday, there are no Wednesday night classes in our church at all. It's fall break, and we've learned our lesson. Don't try to do classes on fall break. And so we'll take one week off, and then we'll come back on the 21st, so two weeks from tonight, We'll be in the sanctuary. Uh, Marty and I have been talking, and he would really like for uh, me to address the issue of human sexuality in all of its uh, controversial uh, aspects. And I said, that would be great, but you also have to teach part of this. So we'll <laughs> both be doing some of that. But I'll, in two weeks, we'll be back, and we'll start talking about human sexuality. And so this is uh, just our church's attempt in a venue where we can be very frank because there are no children. On Wednesday night. It's a little more difficult to talk about some of these, what the Bible says about human sexuality in a Sunday morning service because we have a lot of children there. But uh, so this will be rated PG 13. It won't be crude, but we'll be, let's let the Bible say what it wants to say and let's let it be what it wants to be. So that's what we'll do in two weeks. As always, send your questions. And let me just give you the brief uh, recap from last time. Here was your assignment, your challenge was to pray with this model, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Supplication is the asking for stuff. And we talked about prayer is the conduit or the pipeline through which God gives us power for kingdom living. It's not possible by trying harder to live up to the kingdom way of living praying for your enemies, being compassionate to people who don't deserve compassion, being forgiving of people who don't deserve forgiveness, all the things that Jesus modeled and taught us about this is what the kingdom looks like, is only possible with a deep awareness of the radical forgiveness we have received, the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. And prayer is the pipeline through which God energizes us to do that. He typically does not energize us while we're asking for stuff. And so I love this blueprint for prayer because it focuses a lot on our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Confession, God, you, you search my heart and know me. You know, put in me a clean heart. Those are the kinds of things that power us. So that was your thing. If you didn't try that, I want you to stay with it. If you did it, if you didn't do it, start praying in this way because you'll just experience power. There's real power in the Holy Spirit, and prayer is the pipeline that God uses to do it. Our last set of parables, and there are actually a lot of parables that talk about this issue. I'm just going to give you three, but there are a lot of Jesus' teaching that talks about judgment. 
And judgment is a key idea in the kingdom. But it's a fair question to ask, wait a minute, I can understand why there's a heaven, but why does there need to be a hell? Why is that essential to Jesus' message? Because you're going to find out he talked a lot about the idea of judgment. And I'd like to answer the question, why does there have to be a hell? And is hell basically just a place of punishment for the people that God is mad at? So we're going to answer those questions, but we're going to do it by looking at some stories. I'm going to give you the first one. Is These are all, for convenience, they're going to come out of Matthew 13. There are other parables, other places, but I just got tired of flipping around. I thought, we'll just be in one place. Matthew 13 has about seven parables in it, and several of them are, are judgment parables. Well, this first one is the parable of the sower. So I'm going to read this to you. You're probably familiar with it, and I'm not going to go into great detail. I just want to talk about it because it's fundamentally an eschatological, meaning dealing with the end of things, judgment kind of parable. So he told them many things in parables, stories. There was a certain farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, didn't have much soil. It sprang up because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they didn't have any roots. Other seed fell among the thorns. So when it grew up, it choked out the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times even what was sown. This is a brilliant parable because everybody in that time is familiar with this. I mean, don't have in your mind somebody with a Scott spreader. You know, this is basically bag over the shoulder and spreading, you know, the seed like this. And seed would inevitably fall, not in precision right on the field. And so everybody knew that. And so he uses this brilliant image to say, that's kind of what the kingdom is like, is there's this seed that's being spread. But stop and think about how hard this parable would be to understand if you were just hearing it. You go, well, what did Jesus teach you at school today, Jimmy? Well, he told some story about a farmer sowing seed. Well, what did it mean? I have no idea. All I know is try to get your seed in the really well-plowed area or you're not going to get any fruit, right? So it's difficult. And the passage of scripture goes on and Jesus says, I'm intentionally telling stories right now so that people, it's not easy to understand this. And then he explains it though to his disciples so that after Jesus' resurrection, and of course now, we understand these stories completely. At the time, they were very curiosity provoking, but people were, were wrestling with, what does he mean by that? How does that fit into his message? Well, we know because he explains it to the disciples. He said, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When someone hears the message about the kingdom, this good news about the kingdom, and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. That's the seed on the path. The one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the person who hears the word, receives it with joy, but since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, quickly falls away. In other words, when it becomes unpopular to be a Christian, you realize there are no roots. It just goes away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. In other words, it grows up, but it doesn't produce any grain. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word, understands it, produces a crop yielding a hundred or sixty or even thirty times what was sown. This is kind of an interesting because it, it basically says 
some interesting things about the kingdom. One of the things it says is there are different responses to, to the word. People respond differently. Not everybody says, hey, this is great news. I'm going to become a Christian, and off we go, and is faithful the rest of their life. Jesus says it doesn't really work that way. The rocky soil basically says some people will take this word, but it, it's really not grounded. They're really not committed. Certainly not committed when the road gets hard. They don't have roots, and so they wither. The idea of the seed falling amongst the thorns, getting choked out, brings an idea in, uh, a little bit of a different idea, and that is what you allow to grow in your life along with the gospel. This would be people that, the first is people who aren't very committed Christians. There's just no depth to it. There's no commitment there. The second is people who want to be Christians but also want the cares of this world, the wealth, the riches. In other words, they let other things grow with it. So you begin to see the nuances of Jesus is describing our lives pretty well. He says it really takes a single-minded devotion. The, in other words, we put the crop in the ground, there's nothing there but wheat, and the wheat is going to thrive. We don't let other competing concerns in our lives. Our devotion is to Christ. And so this parable begins to tell us a little about ourselves. One of the key ideas, you'll see it again in another passage, this is in Matt, this is basically Sermon on the Mount, is that not everybody responds to the word in the same way. Jesus says this at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man built his house on the rock. Rains came, storms came, but it endures because he built it on the rock because he did what I said. But everyone who hears them and does not put them into practice is like the foolish person, build their house on sand. It simply won't endure. So you see Jesus talking a lot about it's not a matter of, really, everybody goes to heaven because everybody's going to hear this word, accept it, and off we go. He said expect there to be different reactions to the word. So it sets up this idea that people respond differently to the word. Second parable, and I'll move through these because I think you're fairly familiar with them. I'd like to get to the so what of this. So Jesus told another parable. He said the kingdom of heaven, now you notice how many of his parables are likely. He's going to talk about the kingdom because that's what Jesus is really about. This new rule of God, this new way of living, this completely different entity that we are now part of called the kingdom. He said the kingdom of heaven is kind of like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, didn't you sow good seed in your field? You know, in other words, is your, I thought you had a good supplier here, but something went wrong. Where did all these weeds come from? And the owner said, an enemy did this. The servant said, well, do you want us to go pull up the weeds? He said, no, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you might also pull up a lot of the wheat. He says, I tell you what we'll do. Let them both grow up at the harvest. At that time, it'll be obvious what's wheat and what's not wheat. He said, I'll tell the harvesters, go collect all the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them up, and then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. This, this is an interesting parable because it gives you a little different angle. It's the same idea, is that in, you know, basically in the world, there are different kinds you know, sometimes you have seed that gets choked out. This is a different perspective. It says sometimes you have good, fruitful 
plants, and sometimes you have plants that look like it, but they're not fruitful. And it's an interesting perspective that you can't, here's the lesson, you can't always tell what is going to be the good fruit until it grows up. And so you'll see this also, by the way, over back in Matthew 7. Listen to what this is. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they look like good plants, look like good Christians, but inwardly, they're actually ferocious wolves. Same thing. It says, this looks like wheat, but when it grows up, you realize, wait a minute, that's not wheat. There's no wheat grains on it. It becomes obvious. He says, but inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. What's he saying in this parable? He said, you've got to wait till the fruit, the grain, comes up, and then it'll be obvious. He says, this is how you'll recognize it is by their fruit. He said, you know, the fruit is going to be consistent with the spirit. Good tree can't bear bad fruit. Bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. Then he says, thus, by your fruit, you will recognize them. He goes on and gives another example. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is really in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not everybody who says, hey, I'm a Christian, is actually in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that sounds like the parable of the sower, right? Not every seed is really going to grow up and produce fruit. Some of it's snatched away. Some of it's burned up by the, by the sun. He says, only those who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. He said, on that day, at that judgment time, we're starting to point toward judgment, many will say, Lord, didn't we do all this good stuff in your name? And he says, I do not know who you are. In other words, you don't look like wheat. You look like weeds. So you begin to see this idea of distinction. You know, all the seeds don't grow up the same way. Some, they don't always last. And sometimes weeds and wheat aren't apparent until a certain time. Well, he interprets this parable too for the disciples. He said he, when he left the crowd, he went into the house and his disciples came and said, what is up with all the agricultural stuff? You know, what does this mean about the weeds and the wheat? And he said, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. He said, I am here giving you this good news of the kingdom. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, judgment time, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels out. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and everyone who does evil. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine in the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. A couple of interesting things about this, by the way. Hell is portrayed here as a fiery furnace and a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, for you biblical scholars, I want you to see a connection back to Daniel chapter 3. Uh, along about verse 6, I think, is where it talks about the fiery furnace. But you remember Nebuchadnezzar built this big uh, statue, and he said everybody needs to bow down and worship this. And what did he say? If you don't bow down and worship this, I will throw you into the fiery furnace. And this imagery is being used to describe the destiny of those who serve Satan, who's effectively raised up all kinds of false gods, because he wants to be worshipped, whether it's fame, fortune, money, all the gods of this culture and of this world. And God says, actually, let me tell you how this really works. 
It's my fiery furnace that you end up in if indeed you worship the God of this world, if you go follow Satan. And so hell gets used something that they would understand. They go, ah, I understand what you were saying. This is something that you get for worshiping you know, this false God. The last thing, too, is an interesting statement. This means nothing to us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's just a, a Hebrew way of saying, you need to pay attention to this. This is really important. And we can understand why. He's talking about the destiny, the eternal destiny of all people. So he goes through the parable of the sower, and he begins to you know, basically plant the idea, no pun intended, plants the idea that not everybody's going to respond the same way. Parable of the weeds plants the idea that not everybody who looks like a Christian is a Christian and introduces this idea. This isn't the first time he taught this, but this is our first parable where he says, there's going to come a time when there is a sorting. The weeds will be pulled up, be thrown into the fire, and the grain will be pulled up, and they will shine in heaven with God. And so there's this division, and there's this eternal destiny. One final parable in this chapter, very similar, but he just uses another metaphor, just another brilliant story that they would understand. And you know what's brilliant about this? 2,000 years later, you and I still understand this. You may not be a fisherman, you may not be sowing much, but you understand this. It doesn't require much explanation. And that's unbelievably brilliant to tell a story that, that is impactful 2,000 years later. Well, this one's about fishing. He said, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, like a drag net that was let down into the lake, and then the two boats, generally the two boats would pull it together, or if it was close to shore, they'd put it out, and they'd haul it in, and it just picked up everything in its wake. I mean, it just scooped up everything. So it was like a drag net that was let down into the lake, caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore, then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come, separate the wicked from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And the disciples said, yes, we understand what you were saying. There is this thing called heaven and hell. There is this time of accountability called the judgment. And there is this separation of those who belong to God and those who do not belong to God. That idea, it's not, a, you know, it's not a very complicated idea, it's, but it's a very powerful idea. And so I'd like to talk about, with these parables, and there's several others, and some of the discussion questions I put for some of the small groups are using this as uh, discussion material afterwards, point you to another parable or two to, to examine some of the other aspects. But the fundamental idea is there's heaven, there's hell, and there's judgment. So, pause to see. Any questions about what that means. Pretty straightforward. Okay, then let's talk about what does it mean for us? What's the so what of this? And I'd like to pull out three implications of this. The first one, before we get to heaven and hell, there's an interesting implication in this about the idea of distinctness, about being distinct. And this is going to be a, kind of a duh type thing, but I don't know if you've really ever thought about it. One of the most fundamental things Jesus is saying is Christians don't look like everybody else. The wheat doesn't look like the weeds. The good fish don't look like the bad fish. In other words, you are able to separate them. Christians are different. People in the kingdom 
are different somehow. It's not random. It's not, well, we got four or five good people. You know, it's not like the Muslim weighing in the balance, like you've got 10 good deeds. I'm sorry, the cut for this tournament is at 11. You know, you just didn't make it. It's not really the idea. The idea is they're just radically different. Christians look different. Great little passage, by the way, in Ephesians 1, 13, that says this, and this, it really ties into this. It says, when you believed, I'm going to paraphrase just a little bit, but when you believed, you received the promised Holy Spirit. It's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. What he's saying is, is that when you believed, when you trusted in Christ, he gave you the Holy Spirit, and it's as though he's giving you a foretaste or a deposit of your inheritance in heaven. And one of the things I teach about this is for us, and then we're talking in our sermon series about the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. In other words, there are implications of the Spirit, and it's interesting that it's called fruit of the Spirit. And it ties in with this idea is that you will then bear fruit. You are trusting in Christ, you are in the kingdom, you have the Holy Spirit, and fruit comes out of your life. We are like these plants. And it's as though when God looks at the world, you and I can't tell a lot of difference sometimes. The person next to me might do as many good deeds as I do, but for totally different reasons. That's why Christianity isn't a moral system. Be good enough. It's a grace-based trust in Jesus Christ kind of a system. And that is because when God looks at us, the Holy Spirit just glows in the dark. And it's easy for him to spot those who trust in Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to measure how many good deeds you did. You notice in the parables of the sower, for example, the good soil, some of it produces 100 times, some 60, some 30. Remember the parable of the talents? Everybody is in the kingdom, even though you might do far more good deeds than I do. You may have much more fruit. It's not the issue of how much. It's the issue of, are we in the kingdom? Are we producing fruit? Do we trust in Jesus Christ? But somehow Christians are different. There's this idea of distinctness. Remember we said that one of the attributes of the kingdom is that we are in the world but not of the world? That's the same idea. Even though we are in the world, we are in the midst of all the plants in this world, we are not like them. We produce fruit, not weeds. We endure. We don't burn up because we have no roots. We're different. You see this in James chapter 1, by the way. Uh, this is a great little verse. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's an interesting phrase. We are in the world, but we do not become like the world. We won't get choked out by the thorns and produce no fruit. We might look like the weeds in the sense that maybe our neighbors are nice people too, but we, do, we produce fruit, we're radically different. And so this idea of being distinct, standing out, Christians have to stand out. Give you a great illustration of this. This really hit me in a very visual way. Many years ago, uh, it's almost like God said, hey, I'm going to give you this great illustration because I want you to understand what you're supposed to be like in the world. Early in my career at AT&T, Southwestern Bell at that time, our headquarters was in St. Louis. So we'd go to St. Louis fairly frequently for meetings, that sort of thing. So we went to St. Louis, always stayed, got a good rate, the corporate rates. So we'd stay at the downtown Marriott. And I remember on one of the trips, distinctly, I got there, I got in really late at night, check in the hotel, get into the elevator, 
punch the button to, you know, go up to 25th floor or whatever. And I noticed something kind of weird in the elevator. There was, it was taped in to a piece of string and a long stick. And it was taped up there on the side of the elevator. And I thought, that's weird. But anyway, I'm tired. I go to bed. Get up the next morning, dress, come out, ready to go uh, walk down the street just a few blocks to headquarters for my meetings. I get in the elevator, and it's still there. Now, it kind of piques my interest. It's like, what is up with this? Why has somebody taped a string with a stick attached to it in this elevator? Well, I got to the first floor, doors open, and the lobby, if you've ever been in it there, is, it's big like this. You walk out, and it's just a huge open space. Okay, true story. Uh, doors open up. I kind of walk out, and I literally stop. There are, no exaggeration, about 500 little people in this lobby. There is a little person's convention at the Marriott. That's why the stick was in there, is so some of them could get the floor. Hit the, they'd take the stick and they'd punch the button for the floor. I walk out and there, there's not another person of my height in the lobby at that second. It just hit me and I felt really different. People, eyes turn to me and I go, yes, I am not here for the convention. <laughs> it felt so weird. You know, I felt like I stood out. Now, they were very nice. There was no problem. I just kind of made my way on. But I, uh, you know, on to, uh, through the lobby and off we go. But I still today remember that experience of stepping out and all these little people and it was just me. And I felt so different. We are called to be distinct. We are called to stand out in our culture, in everything that we do. The kingdom life will make us stand out. If you find yourself looking a lot like the weeds in the culture, it should be a sign to say, wait just a minute, because the kingdom life makes us stand out. Make sense? So the one idea that I really wanted to point out to you is there is the idea of distinctness. Now, this distinctness adds to the idea of judgment. Here's the question. Why does there have to be a hell? Why does there even have to be a judgment? If God is so powerful, why can't he just make it so everybody gets to go to heaven? I want to give you three thoughts about this because the Bible teaches that judgment is absolutely essential part of the kingdom. You cannot have the gospel without judgment day. There, if without the eschatological component, in other words, history's going somewhere, someday there will be a judgment, there will be a sorting, and there will indeed be eternal consequences. Without that idea, you do not have the gospel. You cannot say Jesus came to this earth, died on a cross, so your sins are forgiven, and that's the story. And I sure hope that you accept him. And if you don't, well, gosh, too bad. I mean, that's, that's not a coherent gospel, and it's not the gospel that Jesus taught. Why? Let me give you three thoughts. Number one, justice. Without a judgment, there's ultimately no justice. There's a, this you, some of you will remember this. This was painted on the side of the Murrah building, by the teams that came here on the Murrah bombing, and for years I would see this downtown as I would walk to my office. 
We search for the truth, we seek justice. The courts require it, the victims cry out for it, and God demands it. What's this saying? It says this event cannot be made sense of without some idea that there will indeed be justice in the world. The theodicy, what's called the theodicy problem. The theodicy problem is this. If God is good, why does he allow evil in the world? That problem is not solvable unless there is ultimate justice. You see what I'm saying? That problem is not solvable unless there is ultimate justice. The kingdom morality is indefensible and I would argue irrational without the idea of ultimate justice. For example, what would the kingdom way of living say about this event? You remember when we talked about the idea of forgiveness, we talked about that Amish community where the gunman came in and killed several children and the idea of their forgiving him and they went and ministered to his wife. Some of them went to his funeral. They prayed for him. That is kind of a kingdom response. Pray for your enemies, those who persecute you. In other words, that morality, that kingdom way of living is completely irrational unless there is ultimately justice. Make sense? That makes no sense at all. Paul says it kind of this way in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says this. He says, if it is only in this world that we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than all men. And that's true. If God said to you, there's ultimately no judgment, there is no hell, but I still want you to pray for people who do this and I want you to forgive them, you'd go, you are nuts. I mean, that just makes no sense. The only way I can do that is try really hard to be a supernaturally moral person, and that does not work. It goes completely against our instincts. Without the idea of a heaven, a hell, and a judgment, there is no justice. The other thing that is lacking without judgment, so in other words, the kingdom morality depends on our trust in justice, that justice will be done, maybe not for me right here, right now, maybe not even in this lifetime, but ultimately there will be justice. The second is, in, my, in our current living, as we spread the gospel, the idea of judgment provides restraint for human behavior, restraint for human behavior. I'll show you a, an interesting chart. This is just a few of the mass deaths in the 20th century. World War I, about 15 million people killed. Uh, Russian Revolution, uh, Lenin managed to kill about 9 million people. Stalin topped that easily, about 20 million people. World War II, 66 million people killed, including the 6 million Jews, uh, the, the Armenian mass, uh, massacre, genocide is in there. In China, Mao Zedong, going for a world record, killed 40 million people. I haven't mentioned Pol Pot in Cambodia and some of the others, but it's just horrifying. It's, it's kind of unbelievable. On the one hand, one would hope that if Christianity is real, there can be some sense of justice. And the scripture says that. That's what judgment is about. But there's also the idea of restraint on human actions. If there is no 
hell, if there is no judgment, then there is no restraint for people. My point is not to say that hell kept Hitler from doing what he's going to do. My point is that if it's that bad, imagine what it's like if there's no restraint on your or my behavior. It's like Jesus would like for you to be a nice person, but if you aren't, well, you aren't. And that's kind of it. There are no consequences to that. If you can get that in a religious world, what do you get with no consequences whatsoever? In other words, the nature of humanity is such that we are bent. We are bent toward sin. We are bent toward evil. And one of the things God does quite graciously, in addition to justice, is heaven and hell act as a governor, as some sense of restraint for us. So it's not just the morality that happens, it's also organizing it. This is one of the reasons why our country is organized the way our country is organized. Is the founders of our country, I don't know if you know this or not, but many of them were uh, believers in God, contrary to public opinion, uh, modern opinion. And one of the ways you see that is they had this biblical understanding that by our natures, we don't do good stuff. Anyone who wants to argue that we are basically inherently good is really going to have to ignore an awful lot of really recent history because there's no argument that can be made here that says we're basically good people. If Hitler had just been hugged more when he was a kid, there'd be 9 million people that were still alive. That's just not an argument that could be made. Christians believe, no, actually, by our nature, by the fall, we're bent towards sin, and God is trying to restrain us. Our founders understood that, and so they said, you know what, we need we need for our development some sense of temporal restraint as well. That's why our government has checks and balances. No one is allowed to have unlimited power. The way our government is set up, that's why it has worked as well as it has. It acknowledges the reality that we need restraint. So some people say that as a Christian, you should only love God, you should not fear hell. And I would argue against that. I would say given our nature, you absolutely we are being shaped into people who behave the way we do because we love God. But God is wise enough to help us and say, I will give you a restraint. The fear of the Lord, as much as we kind of want to apologize for that phrase, is a really meaningful statement. It's like there really is accountability. It's like saying to your two-year-old, look, I want you to behave, but A, there are no consequences but I'm pretty sure you're just going to do everything mommy and daddy wants because you love us so much. That's called insanity. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with your child. Your child is a two-year-old. And if you train your child right and you put some restraints in their lives, by the time they're a 22-year-old, well, 32-year-old, by the time they're a 32-year-old, then they do act out of love and they don't need the restraints, but they do at one point. So we need a restraint. Heaven and hell is a cosmic restraint for us. And then finally, it's developmental. It's justice, it's a restraint, but it's also developmental. Heaven and hell isn't there to vent God's anger at us. It's there to assure the idea of justice, to make the kingdom way of living make sense. It's there to put some fences around us until we get to the point developmentally where we act out of love for God and who we are 
He wants to help us be developed by restraining us. You see this all the time in the scriptures. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, Old Testament to New Testament. If you think about the law of Moses, the law of Moses sounds an awful lot like somebody who is disciplining a particularly unruly child. 613 commandments in the law of Moses. Do this, don't do that. Why? Because I said so. Seriously, a lot of the command, we try to make sense out of some of the commands. The rabbis did not waste their time on that like we did. They said, you know what? Some of the commands in the Old Testament, we have no idea why they're there. In fact, the only reason they're there is to teach us to obey things whether we understand them or not. That's pretty brilliant. That's exactly what you do. We are teaching our children to obey whether or not they always understand it. That's what the Old Testament is. What did it do? It brought us to Christ. What does Paul say in Galatians? The law was a school teacher, a pedagogue, to bring you to Christ, to grow you up. And so this idea of heaven and hell, this idea of judgment, provides a restraint for us. That's the same reason that your 22-year-old, you don't spank them. Your 22-year-old, you don't send them to time out. But you do your 2-year-old because they need that restraint until they are developed. In fact, that restraint is important in their development. So heaven and hell, why does hell exist? Hell exists, I would argue, for several reasons. Number one, without ultimate justice, the kingdom life, that makes no sense. That morality, you cannot do it on our own without that assurance. We need the restraint. We need a bit of healthy fear of consequences and fear of the Lord. And third, it's actually God saying, I'm trying to train you and grow you and mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. So why is there a hell? I'll give you some things to think about, about why that's absolutely essential. Let me pause, see what questions you have, and then we'll go to our third question. So why did God create creatures who are bent towards sin? Well, if you think about the creation account, did God create creatures who are bent towards sin? God created creatures. Now, this just depends on your theology, but either way your theology goes here. Basically, God created Adam and Eve in a perfect environment. It is an environment that he will restore in Revelation at the tail end of chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. You'll see things come full circle. God didn't make us bent to sin. Sin distorted us. In other words, the sin, if you want to think about it in just philosophical terms, the way Paul talks about it is that Adam's sin bent us all towards sin. That's the nature of the fall, the fall of humanity, the disobedience, the rebellion against God, and consequently, we inherit this fallen nature. So does the universe. Romans 8, Paul says the whole universe is decaying, and that's not God's intent. He's going to redeem even that. He's going to make a universe that doesn't fall apart, that there are no mosquitoes. There is no such thing as crabgrass. Okay, those are my favorites. But anyway, basically, creation is going to be restored. So God didn't make us bent towards sin. We indeed sinned, and that has marred our nature. The work of Jesus Christ is to redeem, restore, bring us back, reconcile. All those phrases are used in the New Testament to put things back to right. So good question. Um, do you believe that there are people who are meant for the judgment? I'm a, I, I think what that question means are there are people who are meant to go to hell. I know of one dog 
I don't know. I'm just kidding. Don't send me emails about that. Okay, I'm going to hit this lightly because it, it could take a long time to answer, but I think where that's coming from is the idea of the, basically the Reformed thinking in Protestant tradition, it's known typically as Calvinism, says that there is the idea of irresistible grace and unconditional election. And what that really basically means, I'm going to do a little injustice to, to this theologically, but what that basically means is that God has completely sovereignly chosen who will indeed be the good seed in the good soil and who will indeed persevere to the end. And that you cannot resist that if indeed you are chosen. The implication of that is, I'm going to be careful not to distort Calvinist teaching because it's not as far off as you, as you actually will think. But it basically says, then by implication, those who are not chosen are indeed destined for hell. That's a reform way of thinking. And Arminian way of thinking, I'm going to divide the world into two camps. There are more camps than this, but this makes it simple. Arminian way of thinking says you have some measure of free will and that uh, basically, grace is not irresistible. You have the opportunity, and here's the way Wesleyans would say it, you can respond to God's grace. You don't earn your salvation, but you can respond or you can not respond. That makes it seem to us more like our fate is in our own hands. That is not an Arminian position, by the way, but you get the idea. So that would mean, hey, it's up to me. I'm not destined. I have the opportunity to go to heaven. So without getting into the details of that, let me just say this. Even the reform position holds that you and I are responsible for our actions regardless of God's election, okay? So I just want you to understand that Calvinists don't actually believe that God just said, I know you'd like to go to heaven, I know you'd like to believe in Jesus Christ, but I'm not going to let you. That is not Calvinist teaching, okay? So... Reformed people would say that there are those who are destined for heaven. They would also say, though, that those who are not are going to be culpable for their sin. It's not like I'm a good person all my life, but I just wasn't picked. You know, that's not the image whatsoever. So reform thinking a little more that way, but not entirely. What about someone raised in a, another religion, particularly? possibly a radical religion that doesn't have a chance to ever develop any roots in Jesus? So this goes to more of a, the question of how will God administer justice? That's not encompassed in these parables. So I'll just leave that and say it's not in the scope of our lesson. I'm just kidding. I'll answer that. Uh, but it is not in the scope of these parables. In other words, they do not address that. One thing I'll give you some food for thought is to read Romans chapter 1 and so the idea of justice applies here. Justice is not fairness. The human idea of fairness is not even close to the idea of justice. In one of our earlier parables, we talked about this, that Jesus unapologetically, remember the parable about the workers in the vineyard, that the people at the end only worked an hour, they got paid the same as the people who worked 12 hours, and they were like, whoa, this is not fair. And Jesus says, let me tell you how the kingdom works. God gives good gifts to whoever he wants. He's just blatantly saying that the kingdom of God is not fair. And by the way, that's really good news. 
because by any standard of human fairness, you and I are toast in the fiery furnace. All right, so God's unfairness is the only thing I'm counting on. The question then of how does God's justice get administered in all these different situations, two thoughts. Number one, as far as you and I, that makes no difference because you and I know what we need to do. So don't let that be some excuse for us to say, well, I can't believe in God because I don't know how he's going to handle you know, somebody over here. That's a smokescreen and we'll be accountable. So number one, you and I know what we need to do. We need to do that. Number two, Romans 1 gives a hint, I think as to how God administers justice in these different circumstances, and I'll just leave it at that. The point there is, is that, is God just or not? And the Bible says he is indeed just without giving us all the criteria of, oh, well, in this case, he's going to do this. Oh, in that case, he's planning to do that. The scripture does not answer that. It does give us enough to know what we need to do, and that's part of the way, part of the reason the Great Commission is in the Bible, is that if the world is lost, another parable, right? We've got lost sheep out there. They're doomed if we don't find them. So what was the point of that parable? Get out there and take this good news to everybody. So that question, I'd turn it just a little, and instead of pondering, gee, wonder how God's going to do justice here, I'd turn it around and say, boy, we better get out there and find those lost sheep. So good question. But I'd turn it that direction. Well, let me get to the third Thing I want to talk about, and that's this question. Does hell exist? So hell, why is there a hell? Give you some thoughts on why that's absolutely essential, why Jesus talks a lot about judgment. It's an inherent part of the good news. And believe me, it is good news that there is indeed ultimate justice. And there is grace that basically allows us to escape our just deserts. That's the good news. You've got to have both of those together. Well, hell, though, is a problem for some people. Is it there to punish people for their mistakes? Hey, this is where I have a problem with hell, too, if hell works like this. Basically, get to heaven, and I say, I'm just a klutz who just had some bad breaks. I made a couple of bad choices, made a few mistakes, honest mistakes, my bad. And God says, too bad, going to roast you in hell for eternity for making some mistakes. That's not the biblical idea of hell. If that's the way it was, I'd have a problem with that. The reality of Scripture and the reason that we have trouble with this is we've got this therapeutic idea of the gospel. We actually have a therapeutic idea of sin because we live in a therapy-saturated culture. And that is this. If I asked you, give me an example of a sin, about half of you would say something that's not necessarily sinful. It's just dysfunctional. Does that make sense? It's just dysfunctional right? In other words, enough psychotherapy could fix that. There's not enough psychotherapy to fix sin. God looks at sin. Sin is rebellion against God. It is active defiance of God. That's what the gospel is here for. Psychotherapy is going to take care of the other things. You know, the anger management you have in your car behind the people in traffic, go get some counseling. The sin problems are things that cannot be solved that way. Let me tell you what I mean. The scripture uses a lot of words like this. Everything we do makes a choice. And the choice is, will we serve God or will we serve Satan? When serving Satan, most of the time we think we're glorifying ourselves. But look at this. No one can serve two masters. You're going to hate one, love the other. Notice the strong statement. It doesn't say, oh, you might make a few mistakes. 
You might make some bad choices. No, you're going to hate one, love the other, or vice versa. You cannot serve God and greed. Cannot serve God and money, God and self. In other words, every choice that we make is a serious distinction. Look at Romans 6. What should we say then? Shall we sin because we're not under law? We got all this grace? Absolutely not, he says. Don't you know that when you offer someone yourselves to obey someone as slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey. In other words, your actions fundamentally are serving either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. God views our choices not as, oh, that's a good choice. Well, not such a good choice. Oh, you're really brilliant. Oh, you're kind of an idiot, Terry. You know, aren't you cute? Pat you on the head. God understands our choices as fundamentally serving or rebelling. We serve sin or we serve God. That's the way the scripture understands our lives. Hell is for enemies of God, not well-meaning klutzes who make a couple of mistakes in life. Does that make sense? Look at this language. Just watch the language of enemies. For when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life? That passage also says, and God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, enemies, Christ died for us. In other words, it doesn't say Christ came to make up for some of those miscalculations. The scripture understands that you and I are making a choice. We will serve God or we will be enemies of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, for Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. James 4, this is a great passage. You adulterous people, don't you realize that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. The kingdom paradigm, what Jesus is saying is, look, he who has ears had better hear. This is life or death. The choices that we make are fundamentally a choice to serve God or a choice to rebel against God. So is hell just punishment? Hell is essential for justice. Hell is where rebels and enemies of God go, not well-meaning, well-intentioned, really good people who just had a couple of bad breaks. That's not the way the scripture talks about it. It talks about our lives as not being so innocent as that. There's real stakes here between good and evil and whom will we serve. Uh, great implication of that, think about the rich man and Lazarus. That's another parable we studied. What was the issue there? The rich man didn't end up in hell because he was a rich man. The rich man ended up in hell because of what? He decided, I am my own God. I will use all of my wealth to serve me. And God said, you got to be God while you're alive, and then you found out the hard reality that I'm actually God, right? It's the choices that he made. Whom will you serve? That's the issue in that parable, and that's the issue with every choice that we make. And there's a powerful lesson there for us. Not only are we to be distinct from the world, we're supposed to be different. And if we live a kingdom life, we will look different. We're going to look like wheat, not weeds. We're going to be well-rooted, not on the path, not seed sown on the path. We're going to be distinct in the world. Hell holds no particular problem for us. Hell is simply the ultimate justice. If you've ever been seriously wronged, 
and God says, I know, but I'd like you to forgive because I forgave you, you need to trust me to do justice, then you would demand that God must be a just God. It only makes sense if he is. And then finally, every choice that you and I make puts us either on God's side or against God. That's why it's so important the choices we make in our life. Think about this, in your business, in your family, to what are you devoted? Self-centered pursuits or being a godly person? Someone who pursues kingdom interests at your work? Someone who builds a family that will love God and trust Jesus Christ? Or is it gonna be self-absorption? That choice has eternal consequences. That's what Jesus is telling you. This has eternal consequences. That's why it's so important for Christians to be careful. What do we let in our head? Think about Philippians, talks about whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is beautiful. Think on those things. Why is it saying that? It's saying that because these are choices that we make, and those choices have consequences, and the consequences are eternal. Hell is not there to punish us. Hell is there to help us grow into the, the image of Jesus Christ. So, as you think about this, I think it's the key takeaway, I suppose, would be this, is that you don't go out there and go, gosh, I better be good so I don't go to hell, because you can't be good enough to not go to hell. What we would want to go out and say is simply, I know that because of Jesus Christ, I'm going to live with God. I have chosen. I'm going to serve God, not sin. I have turned away from my sin, and the blood of Jesus Christ has made me clean. But hell is the destiny for those who are enemies of God. But instead of thinking of them as evil, I'm going to think of them as lost. And so I need to go take this good news to them so that I might save them from the fiery furnace. Hell holds no fear for those who are in Jesus Christ. It is simply an impetus for us to go rescue others from the fire. And that's our charge. That's kingdom living. Kingdom living is to be bold in Jesus Christ because we trust in him. We are completely assured that he is capable of delivering us to heaven. So now we are free to go rescue others. You know that thing on the airplane when they brief you? Yeah, I, hate to, I hate to use this last metaphor, but uh, since Jesus didn't use this parable, I will. So the kingdom of heaven is like being on an airplane and you lose cabin pressure, right? So once you put your mask on, what can you do? You can put the mask on other people, right? Put your mask on first, and then what do you do? You look around and put your mask on other people. That's kind of the Christian life is that we have found Jesus Christ. We have found unbelievable forgiveness, which powers us then to say, I need to go rescue some other people. So that's your assignment. Pray to God, and he will give you power for kingdom living. And that power is going to embolden us and encourage us and strengthen us to go rescue people. You need to go talk about your story. We need to go tell people who are desperately lost that, you know what? There's an answer to your lostness. There's a healing for your brokenness. There's, an, there's a solution for life. There's meaning for life. Why don't you come and meet Jesus Christ with me? That's part of the kingdom life. That's how the kingdom spreads, and that's why the kingdom spreads. It doesn't depend on how eloquent you are. It doesn't even depend on how good you are, how well-behaved you are. 
I remember for years, I was afraid to go tell my story that I was a Christian to my neighbor. Partly because I was afraid he would say to me, really, Christians have yards that look that bad? Don't you guys believe in stewardship? And my point is, it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on how good you are. It doesn't depend on how much you know or how perfect it is. All you are is completely forgiven, and you just need to go put that mask on somebody else. All right? That's your job. Go out and save the rest of the city. In two weeks, this place better be full. <laughs> and not, I'm going to ask you why. All right? Thank you. I appreciate you guys. <laughs>